0: What's up, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of the Top Ten Show. I am John Roca, and normally that would be followed with, and I am Matt Nost. But this week, Matt Nost is taking the week off. He's gone down with a chest cold that is going around L.A., and uh, he has gotten bronchitis again. So uh, I told him, take the week off, relax. heal. let me see if I can find somebody who matches our film acumen to come in and sit in for you and count down a top ten list this week and. I'll be damned if my co-host for the top uh, for the uh, cinephiles, the great Steve Morris, made himself available to come on. Can't thank him enough, ladies and gentlemen. The co-host of uh, Enterprise Incidents, the co-hosts of the Cinephiles, a man who teaches directing, who knows a lot about film, ladies and gentlemen. Well, please welcome Steve Morris to the top
1: ten. How are you, Steve? I'm good. I, I, I these are big shoes to fill, and I was as funny watching that your intro. For the top ten show now is so dramatic, yeah, it's so powerful that I'm like, man, this is a this is a lot to live up to. But I'm ready. I'm. <laughs> That's
0: right. Well, usually we like to kibitz a little bit before we start, but uh, also, but also we like to give the little topic. And the topic this week, you know, when I reached out to Steve and I said, Steve, would you be available? And he's like, I can make myself available, which was which I was so appreciative of. But then Steve said, but I, it depends on the topic because we only had a few days notice. It depends on the topic. And I said, why don't you pick a topic? And Steve, please tell the people which topic you've chosen. Although they probably read it in the title. Tell them anyway, which topic you've chosen here for us to do the top 10 today.
1: Well, my first criteria, of course, was laziness because I went, I, I really don't have time to watch. Like if we said, what is the greatest musical of all time? You know, I didn't have time to watch 20 musicals to really well, make that kind of a
0: decision. I would argue it's not laziness. It's a matter of time constraints because you're not a lazy person by any stretch of the imagination appreciated.
1: And then I was started thinking about well like what, you know, what do we do on the cinephiles and is there a way to sort of use some of that cinephileness to to make a top 10 show and the thought that I had was well what does it take to be a cinephile? What right. movies does someone have to see in order to really consider themselves a cinephile? Yeah. And that is what brought Uh, me to the idea of top 10 movies for cinephiles
0: yeah that's what we're doing the top 10 movies for cinephiles so if you want to become a cinephile steve and i are essentially laying out our own personal blueprints of what you might need to watch or what 10 movies you might need to watch to uh become a cinephile or to to start the path of becoming a cinephile, or if you've already walked down the path to uh, discover new ways or new, uh, um, uh, how can I say this, new ways to stretch your abilities or your knowledge of film so that you can become an even more knowledgeable cinephile I think that's the the big part of this all, you know what I'm saying? And, and I don't think we're going to combine them near the end, but we'll see what Steve and I negotiate as we get to the end, but maybe we'll, we'll just kind of leave these lists as they are. And let's do a quick pitch for those of you who don't know, uh, and maybe there are a few of you who don't listen to the center of or if, heard matt and i reference the cinephile certainly matt's been a guest on it for our midnight run episode but this is a show we started a podcast we started what like seven years ago steve um and uh, steve is the one who came to me and pitched this idea of doing a show where me and him just get together and talk about a movie what's uh what's the pitch for the show if people were interested in in taking a chance on our podcast here steve
1: well, first of all, I don't think there is a cinephiles without a top ten show. Oh, I think, I mean, there's, the, you know, if you hadn't been doing the top ten show, and I wasn't, of course, a big fan and listening to it, yes. I think the idea of doing the cinephiles would never have come up. And one of the things that came that the idea came from was me listening to you and Matt talk about a great film, and then not mention this or not say that or not go mm-hmm. that, and like, no, I want to, I want to get deeper into this film. <laughs> yeah, you know, and of course, you're doing ten films at once, and we went, well, right. what if we just did one film? and dug in deep and of course as time went on we went from an hour to talk about a film to an hour and a half to talk about a film to talking about a film for about the length of the film and now frequently we're talking four or five hours about a single film because we really want to explore every single element of that film so these are serious serious deep dives uh into the greatest films ever made
0: and we've had some fun guests on there from michael vogel to k cannon to um, to Matt Nost as I mentioned earlier, yeah. to Winston A. Marshall, Jay Washington, we've had a number of great guests. Your, uh, your, uh, Karen uh, Morris, your wife, uh, she was on the show uh, as a casting director. So there's a number of people who've been on our show. Shannon McClung has been on the show as uh, you know the two sure. members of the Nerd Pals or the Geek Buddies as as we put, technically know them. And uh, so we've had a number of guests on the show, and it's always been fun to welcome guests to expand our knowledge. And of course, Scott Mance has been on a number of times on the show sure. as well. Uh, noted film critic Scott Mance.
1: Um, plus people like Joe Montaigne. We had the writer of American History X. We've had uh, Charles Cook from the National Review. We've had all sorts of interesting people uh, come on the show to talk about movies
0: that they are inspired by. Who is the NPR guy we got to talk about Network? Uh, Warren
1: Olney we had yeah. to talk about Network. Warren Net- Olney. Kip Master from uh, KCRW, and yeah. this came on to talk about broadcast news. Yeah, we had some right. interesting people on the show. Yeah,
0: Masters, uh, she was great. I mean, and of course, back in the news and THR, writing about stuff she's writing about. But yeah, so so much stuff that we've done here and uh, talked about. Great films that we've tackled, and occasional guilty pleasures: Armageddon, yep. Police Story, what have you. But we've jumped. We mostly handle the big films or the classic films uh, or the the films that uh, affect us and change the world of cinema we have a 10-year rule we kind of feel like a a film should be around for 10 years but we've always revisited that every year to see if we're going to break it someday and just start looking at more of the modern film so when putting this list together it was really interesting steve for sure like what when you think of the word cinephile without being snooty what comes to your mind what I was
1: thinking and it is funny because I ended up looking at all of my lectures from teaching film school yeah, of yeah. like and I kind of went because I was thinking sort of like well what is it you should know like what is the like if to have sort of a basis of kind of cinema as a as an art form right. what is the stuff you should know and what's funny and it was true you know the last time I was on the top 10 show is like a few of them particularly my top 2 they were easy yeah. You know, I knew exactly what they were going to be right from the moment that, the you know, we came up with the concept. And then a bunch of the others got really, really, <laughs> really hard to figure out what it was I wanted to include because I didn't want it to just be a snooty list. You know, I didn't want it to just right. be, oh, you must see this Italian neorealist film or this, yes. you know, that. I didn't want to do that. I wanted these to be great, but it's not exactly the same as saying great films. That's
0: right. not what we're saying. Right. You know, it's something a little bit different. How about how was it for you? Yeah, I think it's a combo. I think it's films that I think are important combined with films that I think changed the landscape of film for whatever reason, maybe kind of influenced the horror genre, or influenced cinematography, or influenced right. direction, or what have or changed the um the or became the popular genre because of this film, or is the greatest representation of that genre when that genre ruled the box office. For decades, so there's there's a number of things that that uh, came into my top ten, and I'll tell you this: this is one of the hardest lists I ever had to put together. Like, really, just some of the cuts, almost like cutting my own children out of my will. It really was really tough to just pare it down to ten and be honest. And I'll tell you what: uh, next week, my top ten would be probably would be completely different. But this is the top ten that felt right to me for right now, where I'm at emotionally and mentally about the medium of film. And about the numerous discussions I've had for years now with people just like you and Matt Nosed and others about film, so we'll see. There's going to be some surprises. There, um, there might be some uh, interesting choices on both our parts. It's going to be fun to discuss as we get into it for sure. So, real quick, let's check in with you, Steve. How are things going in your life? What's uh, what's the, what are you guys prepping for? What's going on in enterprise incidents? Uh, what else is going on in your world? We like well, to give it's here, so. Yeah.
1: That, that's right. I forget. This is something we rarely have time to do on the top yeah, ten show. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what is going on in my world? Well, I we just did part two of our conversation of one flew over the cuckoo's nest on yes. the cinephiles. That was a great conversation. Agreed. I, we really got into some some stuff, and I'm I'm and that just went out last night. And as far as enterprise incidents, the Star Trek show we finished the original series when i get off with you i will be editing the final episode of the original series which is turnabout intruder right and last week on our episode on all our yesterdays we had both leonard nimoy's son adam nimoy to discuss the episode and a 40 minute interview with the man himself william shatner wow on on the show so that that was really exciting
0: yeah yeah Uh, i gotta listen to that interview for sure
1: yeah as as far as my life Things are pretty good. Things are pretty good. I just uh, I just never seem to have enough time in the day to do all the other projects that I keep thinking I want to do. That's <laughs> the only thing I'm missing.
0: And you're working on a directing book now. Is that correct? You're still working on that, and putting that together. Would you say that you're still doing that?
1: yes but i haven't written on it in a while i you know what i you know i'll i'll put it out to all the fans of the top 10 show what i really need is a publisher or a book agent oh. that's that's where i am right now i've got about 150 pages of a directing book that really came out of my lectures from film school yeah. that i'm really proud of and the idea of the book it's called the director's toolbox and it's literally going from conception all the way through post production what is the process of putting a movie together and what are the tools that a director requires to keep all of those moving parts under control and i'm having a great time writing the book but i did slow down in the last uh year or so and have not written as much as i
0: should have (laughs) right on right on uh all right well as for as for me uh things are things are fine after you ask but things are fine i've got a lot going on putting things together watching the world cup uh enjoying um you know try launching two new channels here we got a game time channel which is the sports channel and a strong style channel which is a wrestling channel along With expanding the reach of what we've got going on the Outlaw Nation Channel with a hot mic, you know Jeff Snyder and I slowly building the show, getting more and more uh, attention for the show for sure. Uh, Starting to branch out, do more of stuff that's that's solo. The Geek Buddy stuff is building as we're doing. We're now now instituting trailer reactions into our repertoire of things to do for the uh, for the Geek Buddy. So there's so much happening for sure. Uh, But it's Christmas, man, and that's like really the. I'm just in a good happy place um uh, you know with where i'm at reassessing where the channel is at the goals i want to make for the channel all of that heading into 2023 so that's pretty much where i'm at and been in trying to catch up on all those films so that i can vote on these awards on the, in the uh, hollywood critics association when you're a board member they kind of have to they're kind of like you got to watch everything so you can vote on everything so in a, years past i've let it slide and Certainly last year or earlier this year when we were looking at the Best Picture nominees, Steve and I had a nice little series on the Outlaw Nation channel where we reviewed each one. And that may, I may have to bring that back again because that was a lot of fun hanging out was with Steve and yeah. breaking those films down. So although those are reviews are past due due in terms of the fact those films are already come out, it still would be fun to revisit them as a celebration for the Oscars for sure. So I'm sure we'll be doing that in 2023 if Steve and I can find the time to do it. But yeah, all that stuff happening, some great movies out right now, um, You know, still buzzing off Avatar 2. Uh, and uh, looking forward to seeing uh, what we're going to be getting next week as well, if there's any screenings before the year wraps up uh, that I can enjoy. But I got a, I got the menu, I got Empire of Light, and I got a couple more that I need to kind of watch and consume this weekend uh, to enjoy, not to mention a bunch of TV series that are just popping off like crazy now, Steve. So it never ends, but I'm trying oh. to find the moment to enjoy some Christmas time, for God's sakes. Um, Absolutely. It's the season. By the way, the the yeah.
1: I love doing that series on the Oscar nominations yeah. with you, and the, one of the biggest reasons was last year was the first time i actually had seen every single one of those movies because i did those reviews with you and i hope that you give me the the motivation to do the same thing this year so i can
0: actually you know know what i'm talking about yeah yeah i'm down i love it it's a nice little it was a great series we had fun doing that all right well without further ado let's jump in uh, to the top 10 show i'll handle this part this is the way it works each of us uh, goes off on our own after we pick a topic and steve chose the topic today we go off on our own compile our lists we don't tell each other a list come on back here and count it down we go from 10 to 8 and then we go 7 and 6 then we take a break for our sponsors and then we go one by one: five, four, three, two, one, all the way to the top and as i said steve and i will feel if we need to combine the list or not by the end of the list so we're going to leave that a little ambiguous for now steve is our guest and as sitting in the mat no seat he usually goes first so number 10 on your list of the top 10 films every cinephile should see
1: so here's what i was thinking about i was thinking i i really do need to put a silent film on the list i think that's really important okay and and i was kind of going through well what are the silent films most people see well most people the first thing they're probably going to see is a charlie chaplin film or maybe Um, a buster keaton film and i went well i don't think i want to do one of those because i because the reason is is when you do when you look at those you're just so amazed by the skill and talent of the star, that you're maybe not looking at the filmmaking. And then I was thinking, of course, there's The Great Train Robbery, which is the very first real short, as we would think of it. And, of course, there's Birth of a Nation by D.W. Griffith. And I went, you know, fuck Birth of a Nation. I don't need to put that on any list. And so what I came to is what I think is, in many ways, one of the most beautifully crafted silent films, and a silent film that really... Because at this time, we're only figuring out Yes. how do you make a movie how do you do the storytelling and there's a german director who directs two a bunch of incredible films uh like um uh, nosferatu and the last laugh which is an incredible film and that's fw murnow and he yeah. gets brought to the hollywood this is the beginning of this tradition of pulling directors from other countries to come make hollywood movies and he makes a film called sunrise a story of two humans which is Among it's like the pinnacle of silent filmmaking. It's mid-20s. It's Mm -hmm. beautifully, beautifully constructed. It's incredibly moving, and it is, a, I think, a really important film for someone to see the artistry of silent filmmaking.
0: I've never seen it. How how long is it, and what is it exactly about the film beyond your general um, explanation of the film? What is it about the film that, if you're a cinephile, that you should go and pay attention to when you're watching this movie? Because I've never seen it, so if I'm going to watch it And expand my knowledge of cinema. What should I be looking out for? What should I catch in a film like this?
1: Well, I think one of the really interesting things is that you know, when when people started making silent films, the fun was just wow, look at film. And so you know, you'd watch a movie where it was a train coming out of the station or factory doors opening the original Lumiere films. And it took time to figure out how you put a movie together, how you put shots together, how you move the camera around, all, all that stuff. And it takes until the mid-20s for all of that craftsmanship to come together. And so what you see is storytelling mm-hmm. is basic how to put image next to image without words and understand what is happening emotionally for these characters. And there's a you know, it's called a story of two humans, and it is really just about, you know, life and this couple yeah. and how how they live. And it's very, very moving. And for people who haven't watched silent films, I think the big surprise is like, oh, I can be completely involved totally understand a story and not have any sound at all
0: wow okay all right i I will look forward to watching that movie when i get a chance to do it for sure what's your number nine well i wanted to go really in another direction and i think you know this is a film
1: that my guess is most cinephiles probably have seen and obviously we talked about on our show the cinephiles and i think this is one of the this is like the the pinnacle of adventure storytelling and that is jaws
0: oh nice choice man please go ahead you know i
1: it jaws is is first of all it is an amazing film and second of all top to bottom you could just sit there i'm just going to focus on the score I'm yeah. just going to focus on the cinematography. I'm just going to focus on the incredible storytelling and editing. I'm just going to focus on the performances and the script and how this is all put together. And you could just sit back and have a great time because it is such a fucking good movie. <laughs> um, and so I, I I think Jaws, you know, if you haven't seen it, you, you, you got, you're going to lose your cinephile card. As far as I'm concerned, you need to go out and watch that right away and maybe follow that up with our episode of it on the cinephiles.
0: Yeah, absolutely. We had our guest, uh, Eric Rogers, who's a writer and executive producer of numerous animated series. But yeah, absolutely. A fantastic film. I love going back to watch Jaws. The other day I watched it uh, um, uh, just the last hour, just for whatever reason, it was on one of the channels I was flipping through on YouTube TV. And I just kind of sat there and watched it transfixed. And this time the thing about a great movie and a film and a movie that is like a cinephile movie that influences you. Is you can watch it and watch it with a focus on something. Like I'm gonna watch it and focus on the script, or I'm gonna watch it and focus on the acting, or I'm gonna focus on the directing. This time around, I really focused on Williams' score, John Williams' score. Um, beyond the duh, duh, beyond that, the way he lays in these music cues at certain moments, and the silent combined with the silences yep. in certain moments in that last hour of the film. Is I think one of the things that doesn't get talked about enough. I mean, the acting, the shark, um, the direction, the you know, the action sequences are the horror of it all is great. But without that music, I don't think that it takes you to that next level. It kind of elevates the film. And from that exuberant adventurous when the when the boat is spinning around mm-hmm. chasing the shark and, and all of that to the kind of menace that's going on with the beats as the shark is getting closer and you're it's almost like oh you got to get it done you got to get that you better shoot this shark so there's so much about his score that i think really hit me uh, hard this time around as i was focusing on it because that's one of the areas when it comes to movies that i'm not as schooled on so i'm trying to be more aware of scores and where they appear in movies and certainly watching this time around with jaws it is great but of course spielberg's direction still doing it a lot of people think he's a favorite for possibly winning again for the Fablemans all these years later in 2022 you know it's incredible to see how many decades he's survived and how many films he's made that you could argue could make a cinephiles list or the cinephiles list or what have you as some of the greatest to every made. and certainly Jaws is one of them
1: it's funny I, I I know I've said this before but I think Spielberg is arguably the greatest filmmaker ever And by greatest, I don't mean the best filmmaker. I mean the combination. There's nobody that has made so many great films and has managed to make both hugely popular, biggest box office movie of all time movies, these huge adventures, these huge properties, and also make powerful dramas, personal films, you know, films in different genres, all of which have
0: that incredible quality. Nobody else has done that. I I feel like the one genre he hasn't mastered is comedy like 1941 crashed and burned and we haven't seen a real like romantic comedy necessarily from Spielberg. And it would be fun. And sadly, romantic comedies are really not the um, thing nowadays, but it would be very interesting to see him take another shot at comedy or another shot at um, a romantic comedy to kind of <laughs> tackle yet another or conquer yet another genre. Because like Billy Wilder, I consider, I think you're absolutely right, Steve, you can fit in a small basket the amount of great filmmakers and to me great filmmakers mean multiple genres being able to be successful in multiple genres because your abilities as a director shine through no matter where they put you and i think that's the one thing that i think steve one um genre that i think steven spielberg hasn't quite tackled yet
1: yeah i I, it's funny i think he definitely has the ability to have comedy within another genre yes there's all sorts of funny moments in his movies but straight up comedy does not seem to be you know it's funny watching i watched 1941 again maybe three or four years ago oh it is an interesting movie it doesn't (laughs) it doesn't exactly work but it has so many things you go like i see why you thought this would be funny yeah and it's, it's like comedy adjacent, you know, yeah, <laughs> but it doesn't right. quite actually make you laugh. <laughs> you know, it's an Agreed. odd one. Agreed. All right. What's your number eight, my man? I don't know why, but number eight it gave me the most trouble. I kept switching things in and out of this spot. And what I finally came to, there is a film that I remember when we did uh, Chinatown, yeah. which which could have been on this list, but is not. Yeah. Chinatown uh, came
0: real close on my list as well.
1: Yeah. yeah. When we did it, I remember a, an interview with Robert Town, uh, the director. Mm -hmm. who said that Or Robert Town is the right, the screenwriter, not the the director. And he said that he thought this movie was the invention of
0: all. Film. And that movie is one. you you cut out there. Can you say the invention of all what of all thrillers
1: of all adventure film action film came from this one movie. And I know that it's one of your favorites. And that is the 39 steps by Alfred Hitchcock.
0: Oh, I love that movie. Yeah, please
1: go ahead with that one. It is so... And what's so funny is this idea of, like, the thriller. Yeah. The idea of what Alfred hit Hidd- Suspense. And the craftsmanship of this kind of filmmaking is absolutely incredible.
0: Yeah, yeah. 100%. I agree with you. 100%, yeah. I love 39 Steps. I love the fact that it starts and ends in the same place. Uh, it's an unusual Hitchcock film amongst the early Hitchcock films, but it ironically also gives you a preview into how great this guy is going to be as a filmmaker. Like imagine watching this film without knowing that psycho is coming or rear window or all these other great films that are coming from him. You're just watching this film. This is that moment you have when you discover a filmmaker and you see the possibilities of what this filmmaker can be like early Fincher or early Ridley Scott, or early even James Cameron, you're like, wow, there's something here. The sensibilities are here that there's something bigger coming from this guy if he gets the opportunity to do it. And certainly when you're watching 39 Steps, the expansive nature of it all, the back and forth, the dialogue, the twists and turns, the near, the nearer, near, the, um, what was it, the close escapes, the right. near catches. All those kinds of things happening throughout the movie and the twists and turns, the mental twists and turns that you're being put through when you watch this movie it works so well. And I've seen some of the remakes. They don't capture the magic that Hitchcock did with uh, Robert Donat there as the lead in that film. Uh, And it's one of the criterions that I love to go back to and watch. Like, I really do enjoy watching that movie very much because it's a quick watch but it's a it's an enjoyable watch for sure
1: well you know and you know what i realized that i sometimes i i I would make the analogy to music where the first thing you get is you get the greatest hits album and you listen to those songs because they're they're awesome and then if you want to dig deeper you get you go okay well i'm going to get the individual albums but when you really want to go to the deep level is you want to see where it came from you want to see the origin that's the cinephile level is like okay and that's why yes vertigo and rear window and north by those are fantastic films right. but 39 steps is the origin that's where hitchcock really really is firing on all
0: cylinders yeah agreed right it, would you say it's the rubber soles, that that twist that turn from the you know the Ye- boy pop stuff to where this is going to be a deeper Great. i think
1: that's a great analogy yes oh. that is exact is it because it's not like movies like blackmail and the i think it's the tenant i forget what the ones are some of the early signs yeah. some that they're great movies they are yeah. they're really good movies oh yeah, yeah but you're right 39 steps is where it's like oh this guy's got something <laughs> else going on here.
0: exactly oh um all right so that was steve's first uh, uh, three uh, selections here So I will go at number 10 for me, also a silent film. Just like Steve, I agree, silent films are where you got to have one when you're talking about uh, cinephiles because we have no film at all without silent films. And By the way, a fantastic new film that's out now. Well, fantastic, how can I say this? Divisive, but I found it to be fantastic, is Babylon, and that deals with the transition just like Singing in the Rain did in the musical format, transitioning from silent to talkies and how that affected Hollywood and the mania around Hollywood when all of that happened. So silent films are very, very important it is a foundational piece of your knowledge of film and your knowledge to become a cinephile. And for me, I combined two things. One, one of the best silent films ever and a film that, um, basically presented or was the beginnings of the horror genre. Mm. And that's the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. If you would, was- Right, German Expressionism. This is one of those films, and even most recently, the tragedy of Macbeth, which uh, uh, um, is it Ethan Cohen or Joe Cohen? One of the Cohen brothers that Kim Oh, Joe Cohen directed, Joel, yeah. yeah, with uh, with uh, Denzel Washington and Francis McDormand doing Macbeth, and it was all shot in that German Expressionism style. So even in 2021, when that film came out, you had this influence of German Expressionism being a part of our modern film world. And it's because of how people, how people discover uh, when they become filmmakers, they discover these genres, they go back and watch these movies because these movies still hold up. And of course, horror now is a massive genre in ways that it's never been before. And you're seeing that those films are consistently making money. Even the smaller horror films are consistently coming out in making money i would go recently to she said only made 2 million dollars while the menu made 20 on the same weekend so that tells you there's a hunger and a desire for horror to expand what it does to uh, to um, kind of like superhero stuff, like expand the genre, explore different ways to tell these horror stories that are not just straight up slasher or or um, the standard way that we've seen horror films delivered before. So you can go all the way back to Cabinet do- of Dr. Cagliari and see this story and see the horror and the terror in the story of what's happening with this doctor who is uh, doing horrible things to people here and also see the usage of angled sets, of these sharp angles on these sets and how that increases the feeling of tension and drama, either consciously or subconsciously, depending on where you are of the film and how influential that is in set design as well going forward with films um, uh, that we've seen all the way up until today.
1: It's a great choice. And it was on my definitely on my Arnold Lentions list and it kept going yeah. in and out of my list. And the big thing that I think is, I, I love that you put it on the list is that- yeah. It's not realism is that no, so, no, no. Right, so exactly. much of our movies today we're like okay. locked into things have to look realistic and Caligari is art. It's, you know, it comes out of this art tradition that is wow. so visual and so stunning in the use of, as you said, angled sets and shadows yep. and all that stuff. It's a fantastic choice for any cinephile.
0: Yeah. You might even argue that it influences a little noir, as you said. Oh, there's it does. The, light yeah. and the dark in yeah. that uh, with this is there's uh, certainly elements of noir in this as well so uh i had to put it on my list uh for sure um and, and speaking of noir my number nine is probably my favorite of film noir because i do think it's important to explore noir for what it influences um with crime films what it influences in the ability of cinematography what it influences in dialogue what it influences us in in constructing characters that seem real yet fantastical at the same time, which certainly influences a number of genres when they're looking to create uh, films. And so my number nine is Double Indemnity. Uh, Uh, I absolutely think this is the the ruby in the crown of noir, Double Indemnity. Look, I'd love to have said Third Man. I'd love, because of Wells, I'd love to have said other noirs, but to me, or Touch of Evil even, but Double Indemnity is the one. Fred McMurray, who uh, most of us grew up on from our generation, seeing in what My Three Sons or whatever it was, and he's just like the nice dad type or see him as the absent-minded professor or flubber in the original version. So he comes off as just this kind of nice dude with the deeper voice and always kind of the fatherly feeling to him, the paternal feeling to him. But you go back and watch something like Double Indemnity with him and Barbara Stanwyck and Stanwyck basically laying the groundwork for the femme fatale that we will see for multiple decades, even now, most recently in some of the films, we see the idea of a femme fatale is still influencing some of these characters when we're looking at some of the films that are being made today. And certainly the chemistry between McMurray and Barbara Stanwyck in this story about a woman who is, essentially um, possibly using a guy to kill off her husband so she can make her money and they can be together at the end. He's an insurance salesman. So this idea of a guy violating his codes and his ethics for a woman. I mean, that's all throughout the genres of films in multiple decades. And Edward G. Robinson, which people have just always uh, thought of for gangster films seeing him play a guy who's more level-headed, a guy who's really caring about his employee and is really sad about what happened with his employee, kind of a nice change of pace for everybody involved. And Barbara Stanwyck, too, who had played more of the standard female um, love interest in movies, seeing her embrace some of this potent sexuality of hers with the usage of her voice and the lipstick and the smoking and all of it, and the rapid-fire dialogue. The writing here is incredible so if you're a writer watching double indemnity is a is a um is a lesson within itself or a school within itself if you're a cine- budding cinematographer double indemnity is there for you too as well and if you're an actor it's all there for you and of course this is billy wilder so if you're a director there's so much to take out of this so double indemnity is uh definitely uh, one of the great films if you want to become a cinephile that you need to see so not only do I have nothing to
1: argue with in everything you just said, <laughs> but I spent a whole bunch of time going like, I want to include a noir, and I went, ah, oh, Touch of Evil, Third Man. I was thinking about Big Sleep and Maltese Falcon. I was thinking yeah. about, you know, some of these other, I was also thinking about, which isn't exactly a noir, but Treasure of the Sierra Madre. You oh, yeah. Know, you want to know what movie I settled on? What'd you settle on? Double Indemnity. Yeah. <laughs> and the reason is, is because it there the, all those things I just mentioned are great films. They're really interesting, but Double right. Indemnity is like the perfect noir, as far yes. as I'm concerned. Yeah. Just top to bottom, this is when we're talking about a noir film, we're talking about Double Indemnity. Yeah. In a lot of ways, yeah.
0: And 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 the most recent uh, Criterion Collection uh, version of it that came out just a few weeks mm. ago, I cannot encourage you all enough to get it. There are so many great. Behind the scenes mm. and and um, uh, features on it that'll explain to you why the movie is so great, kind of show you a new way to look at the film and give you some background on the history of the making of the film. And there's some great commentary tracks as well that I think uh, if you're getting into the film, uh, the genre of film, uh, and want to study the medium, this is one of those Criterion collections you should absolutely own for uh, that's Double Indemnity. Um, so my number eight is Do the Right Thing. And oh. I- I think this is super important for the social message that is being portrayed here in this movie. Like, we'd seen other movies that had, you know, um, a social message to them about uh, racism, about prejudice, about treating people fairly. Certainly, we've seen that uh, before. I mean, you could even go to to, to, uh, Night of the Living Dead and see how Romero is commenting on racism in our society uh, there as well. But do the right thing is where it all culminates. This is a black filmmaker, and there were not that many black filmmakers in the history of cinema who is showing, the, who is turning the camera around on the country and forcing you to watch and look at some uncomfortable truths. About what's going on in the world and i think this is an important film for a cinephile because if you're a cinephile who wants to see the power of film look at the power of do the right thing look at what you're forced to experience what you're forced to see that is going out that's happening in the streets all over this country all over this world and this idea of authoritarianism and the abuse of that power versus the low or the lower economic minorities versus diversity versus people who are of, of color there's all of that here plus it stretches back to connect it to civil rights later on in the end of the movie when we see ruby d's reaction to seeing the hoses being turned on on young black men and women out in the streets there's so much here and go even past the film and how the studios were afraid that this film was causing riots, that these, uh, these uh, entertainment websites and entertainment uh, trades were coming out saying how this film was causing riots in the theaters and people had hired police and all of this stuff. So the fact that this film could spark that kind of reaction. And if you strip all that away, it's one of the most incredibly well-directed films, one of the most colorful, vibrant films Fantastic work being done by the actors here in this film and the story that it's telling that is um, uh, how can I say it's not straightforward as you might think it's it's an uncomfortable protagonist in a film about a number of antagonists that constantly questions your allegiance to one side or the other and expands your mind about the black experience, the Latino experience, the Asian experience and the white experience in combination with all of this that I think is fascinating to explore in this movie. And there's no way he wasn't influenced by all the great filmmakers that came before with some of the shots that you see in the film here with Ernest Dickerson as the cinematographer.
1: Man, what a fantastic choice. I mean, it's such a, that's such a good call. And the thing is, for those of you who haven't seen it, and maybe you have some impression in your head of like, oh, this is an angry black yeah, man yeah, yeah. who's going to yell at white yeah. people, and you know, and that's what it's going to be about. That is not what it's about. Like, do the right thing is so nuanced and so subtle and 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 never lets you go feel like, oh, okay, here's the good guys against the bad guys. It never right. lets you feel that way. It continually throws you around and makes you feel sympathetic for, for people who do things that you shouldn't feel sympathetic for. It right. makes you be uncomfortable with people that you want to really like. And as you said, it is a filmmaker's film. I mean, it is, you know, yeah. like, you know, there is a reason that, spike lee studied under martin scorsese at nyu you know and you can see that influence of a the great you know lover of film filmmaker teaching another great lover of film filmmaker and and i just have to say i think we did a great job covering it on the cinephiles with andre gordon i think it was three parts and we had a a fantastic conversation about that movie
0: we really did yeah it was great and andre being a, a you know being an actor and a producer and a director himself as a black actor producer and director and writer uh, hearing his points of views on it all was really a great um, extra level of interpretation for the film that both of us, I think, got a lot out of. And so oh, yeah. it was great to have that conversation with him. And this is this is yet another one that is on Criterion as well that y'all need to get pick up and and uh, watch and learn. You know, and as Steve said, I think it's an interesting point. Don't get caught up in this idea that he's that it's a hateful thing or it's from a hateful place. It's not. It's from a place of educating people, and that's the that's the mistake that a lot of the media when they interpret this movie fall into is this idea that it's preaching hate. It's not, it's preaching education and understanding uh, through a hard lens, but sometimes you didn't, you don't want to listen unless it's a hard lens and now you get to listen to it for sure. Well, Uh, all right. So that's my 10 through eight. So Steve, let's get to your seven. What's your seven? So my seven, as
1: I said, is double indemnity. Um, And uh, my next two, strangely enough, the next two I picked, these are both way more your movies than they are my movies, but I also think they're really important cinephile movies. And the next one is John Ford's The Searchers.
0: Yeah, well, that's a punt, so we'll put a pin on that one. All right, that's further up on my list. Um, and so, uh, but do you have anything more to add to *Double Indemnity* as your seven, or no?
1: No, I think I think I couldn't add very much to how beautifully you covered it. So no, I don't have <laughs> too much more to add, other than it's a fantastic film noir. My next one again, and maybe this will be. Where a are we at right
0: point. now with you? Uh, we're at number oh. That's that was six. So, okay, the so next well, let's stop there at six right. for you because we got to take that break before we jump at the five. So I'll get to my seven and six. So my seven is some like it hot.
1: Good choice. Good is that choice. on your list or not? It is um, not.
0: Okay. Okay. I mean. You, I just mentioned how Spielberg hasn't tackled the genre of comedy. You cannot ignore the genre of comedy when it comes to films. Certainly from the beginning, the idea of comedy was an important part of this. Uh, the idea of the vaudeville influence in films for sure, but I think it all culminates. And I think every romantic comedy movie, every comedy movie, every, every movie of fish out of water, every, even the elements of uh, cross-dressing, all these things, Stem out of some like it hot. It is one of the most incredible scripts ever written. I think there's a lot of influences to the tightness in Tootsie in that script that come out of some like it hot. Once again, another Billy Wilder film. I, I know I was, I was shocked to put Billy Wilder twice on my list, but that speaks to the volume of what a great filmmaker he or the uh, uh, evidence of what a great filmmaker he is. And this film itself just so funny with Jack Lemmon with Tony Curtis the uh, beginnings of Marilyn Monroe and the explosion that she was going to be but the humorous aspect of it all the way they're involved in these um, uh, situations and the writing with within the humor within the situations coupled with the writing that's going on it all works so well and oh by the way it's also a little bit of a suspense thriller because these guys legitimately think they're going to be murdered by this person, by this mafia guy, uh, if they don't uh, find a way out of this situation. So what they lead in, what it leads into um, is just fast, is just so much fun to experience and enjoy. And of course, uh, Joey, is it Joey Brown? I think as the, uh, the older gentleman there who has the one of the greatest lines in history at the end of a comedy, well, nobody's perfect. Just such a great, Button on a phenomenal comedy. So, if you want to learn about how to write comedy, how to direct comedy, how to perform comedy on film, I think you can't. I I don't think any other film will get you, will get out. You will get more. I don't think there's any other film that you'll get more out of than some like it hot. It is just one of those ones that is worth it for you to reappreciate and go back and visit. And certainly, Steve and I talked about it for episodes of The Cinephiles that I thought were great. So this is one I highly recommend.
1: It's a really, really great choice. It is, it is. There is a reason that it tops so many lists for great comedies. Mm. And and I think too, you know, one of the the themes that I'm seeing in both of our lists is there are these people who kind of poo poo the older movies. They say, Oh, it's a black and white movie. It's probably boring. It's probably, and what you could see from films like double indemnity and the 39 steps and some like it hot are no, these are fun, exciting, funny, the, the you know some like it hot is as funny as any comedy you could possibly imagine yeah it is yeah. so well put together and while the stories of Marilyn Monroe on the set do not <laughs> sound like things I want to deal with man those scenes are really really good with her
0: yeah and I think it influences every so some of you may be going oh why aren't you putting uh, you know a bridesmaids or uh, Ricky Bobby or all those comedies are influenced by some like it hot so for me You have to go back and watch Some Like It Hot so you can understand how filmmakers borrow, steal, or use the construction of that comedy to construct their comedies, to hit the beats that they want to hit within their comedies. It's so essential. So if I was going to choose one comedy out of all the comedies for cinephile purposes, I absolutely think that Some Like It Hot is the one that really kind of – Drives that home and change the comedy genre from what it had been with the Marx Brothers and the slapstick, all that kind of stuff to showing that the com- the comedy can work out of situational stuff and remain intelligent, still have the slapstick, still hit the bigger comedy beats, but also have more incisive commentary on what's going on between men and women and the, the, um, uh, the gender wars, but also talking about um, uh, this friendship between the two main guys as well. So there's so much here that's just... A lot of fun to explore for sure. um So then, my number six is maybe the first. I think the first, you know, what the second film in color that I have here in the bottom five, right. and that is uh, The Dark Knight. Interesting choice. Yeah, I I was going back and forth about what to include here in the modern sense for cinema because you could absolutely just pick out films for the last twenty years and do a whole top ten cinephiles. A film sure. you need to watch you know you could over the last 20 years but of course all of those are influenced by things that have come before but the dark knight i think is the one film that came out and sparked a revolution that went all the way to the academy awards uh um nominations and so by that it didn't get an for Best Picture, but the fact that that film came out and didn't and caused such an uproar amongst uh, the fans and filmgoers and the popular uh, websites to increase the number of nominees to 10 because that film felt unjustly cut out and sparked a revolution in terms of the fans of superhero films to be like, this is what the genre can be, therefore we demand you to make more. I don't think, I don't know, 1990, 19, uh, um, uh, what was it 2008 is... Also, right around the time when Iron Man comes out, and- but I think The Dark Knight is the one that opens the doors to the possibility of the superhero genre becoming what it is now, which is the premier genre uh, of film that is, go- that is uh, working today, for better or worse, if you talk to Tarantino or Scorsese, for better or worse, but for, I also think this this genre is attracting some of the greatest filmmakers we have going around today. Ryan Coogler being one of the premier ones that is involved in, in in making these superhero movies. But The Dark Knight is a great noir. It's a great crime film. It's an incredible script. It's a phenomenal performance from Heath Ledger that has shades of going even all the way back to Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, that kind of weirdness, off-centeredness, what's real, what isn't fantastical approach to a character like this and oh a fantastic Hans Zimmer score and Christopher Nolan one of the greatest filmmakers working today at the top of his game to take a genre out of Adam West tights um and even Christopher Reece Superman stuff and move it to a whole nother level where it's 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 seen by some of the premier film critics or premier film historians and analysts as one of the best films ever made not just one of the best superhero films ever made. And I think that's why I had to put it on my list.
1: It's funny. I I agree with many of your points and certainly I agree with the, the film's importance in terms of where filmmaking goes and where Hollywood goes. And I absolutely agree. You know, there's, there's no way to praise Heath Ledger enough as far as I'm concerned for that performance, but this is the first one that I kind of don't agree with as going on a cinephiles list. For two two reasons, one is I think mentally I don't know if you've had this experience, uh-huh. even without seeing it recently, that movie has gone down in my estimation wow. just in my head okay. over the last many years, and 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 part of it is that I think I don't think the whole if you remove Heath Ledger's performance from it, yeah, I don't feel like the whole structure of the film all fits together quite right. That seems to drift when we go off to Hong Kong, and it's it's the score is super powerful, but it doesn't all I don't know. It doesn't all work for me as a movie in the way that I first thought it did when I first saw it, mm-hmm. which isn't to say it isn't really good. But I also go like to me, it's more of a a, a brilliant and amazing, but kind of flawed film. Yeah. And so I don't know that I would put it on a cinephile's list. Not that I wouldn't put it on a this is an incredibly important film <laughs> and there's all sorts of stuff to learn from it because there's all sorts of great stuff in it. But, yeah, it's, it doesn't feel like a cinephile movie to me okay fair
0: enough that's your opinion you're welcome to it uh and i appreciate that so but let's take a break now uh, as so we can hear from our sponsors and after this we'll be back with our respective top fives of the top 10 films every cinephile should see all right steve we're back let's jump into our top fives please and we'll go one at a time here go ahead what's your five Again, this is
1: more your movie than mine, and one we uh, covered on the cinephiles, and I have a feeling might still be on your list. Okay. And this is, had to go to the French New Wave, and the movie is Breathless. It didn't, I didn't make my list,
0: so please wow. go ahead. I know, well, I'm shocked, too. Like I said, cutting my own children is what it felt like. It, it, the- it was really, really hard, and it's so
1: funny because it, this is not really one of my favorite films, mm-hmm. but I think if you're going to understand where cinema goes in the six late 60s and then into the 70s and even if you care about the great filmmakers of today whether it's it's tarantino or um just drew a blank on magnolia director there will be paul thomas anderson like the if you want to be a cinephile well you got to go back and know what they're talking about and breathless is a film it is a low budget film it it manages to do these kind of sounding contradictory things mm-hmm. which is to be more artistic and less realistic and also way more grounded in realism doesn't make sense that you could have those two things together <laughs> and yet it's true much more frank so oh. what to who the characters are and what they want right,
0: can you, sorry steve you cut out there with the internet can you repeat again what we were saying
1: I'm sorry, I'm having weird problems with my internet today, so I apologize to everyone. What I was saying is that it manages to be both more realistic and more artsy-fartsy at the same time. Oh, yeah. It deals with these themes where it deals far more frankly with sexuality. It mm-hmm. deals far more uh, in a much more gray w- way with morality. The story isn't cut and dry. You can't quite understand exactly who the characters are or what they want. It's something that keeps you going back and going back. And it's filmed in a way that's not the classic, perfect, crafted storytelling like you might see in a Hitchcock film. This is filmed with jump cuts and strange connections and things that you're not 100% sure of what happened or what you saw. And that causes you to go back and back and back and back and reinterpret it and rethink about it. It is a really, really, not just good movie, but a really important movie.
0: Do you think do you have a favorite scene from the movie that you think really kind of bring culminates, or brings all the elements of it together to, uh, as a culmination?
1: Yeah, my head. Internet. Sorry, my Internet yeah. keeps going out. OK, Um. Okay. hopefully, hope hopefully it'll stabilize. So- sorry to everyone. But uh, my fa- favorite scene, I, I-, I got to go with that like 20 minute scene of the two of them in the room. Mm-hmm. That that scene and it's just it, if someone said, "Hey, like a third of our film is going to be two people in a room yeah. just talking," and and sometimes it's sort of it's just it's like you're looking inside a real relationship, which right. I don't think had ever been put on camera in that way. This is just how people deal with each other, you know. Right. I think it's an incredible scene.
0: Yeah, you know, I love this film. We talked about it. Oh, we did an episode of, a, of it on the Cinephiles uh, after um, uh, Gadar passed away, but like. There's so much uh, about it that I really, really – it, it kind of just influences me in so many uh, – ways. sorry, Belmondo. I mean it, it just influences me in so many ways um, in terms of the dialogue, in terms of the fact that you don't have to direct a film with these massive uh, set pieces and massive scope and sweeping <laughs> movings of the camera. It can be just a simple film that the camera feels like it's a third person in the room watching the, even the camera even moves left to right as if they're sitting there in the conversation it's a fascinating approach to telling this film and yet it still works even the camera the camera even jungles around jumbles around a little bit as certain things are happening so someone's like when he's running or when he's you know kind of trying to escape from the cops and all of that Um, and the, the story itself just kind of goes on these weird little tangents yeah but you go along with it because it feels like real life and when we're talking about french new wave that's what we're talking about is grasping the feeling of real life messing with moving around back and forth messing with time uh, constraint, which of course influences tarantino later with with pulp fiction and other things so there's so much about uh, breathless that i think people need to understand and watch and the dialogue itself is so well written uh and also the story uh his comeuppance at the end there is a satisf- there's a satisfying end to the film as well because you do end up caring for these characters, end up liking these characters, and uh, and the way it makes it the way it brings um, the city to life as well, I think is another element of this that is just fantastic to explore in Breathless for sure.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, all right, so then my number five, and I don't know, Steve, might push back on this one as well. My number five is The Godfather Part Two. Uh, how, how can I push back on The Godfather? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, like, <laughs> is there anything uh, that doesn't work in The Godfather Part Two, Steve? No, um, for me, 100%. This is, I mean, Coppola, I almost put Apocalypse on here um, just for the genre of war films and kind of showing the uh, fantastical nature of a film like this and what it can do. But I think Caligari kind of hits a little bit on that. So for me, The Godfather Part Two, this film, more than The Godfather, I know people might, might probably put The Godfather on first, but to me, The Godfather Part Two, in terms of the scope, I think this is the opening of the door to the scope of a film that you can tell yes we had the david lean epics and what have you but this was something different that we had not seen before seeing two incredible actors playing the same role but then seeing the way coppola brings to life uh the beginnings of america versus the current state of america that he's setting the film in with with pacino's character think, in the 70s versus that time when Vito was younger the bringing it to life and Having that combination of danger and menace along with these weird, funny moments that you have in the earlier parts uh, when you're going back in time in The Godfather and the seamless ability to move them within each other, going back and forth in time. That is incredibly difficult to do. Even nowadays with all the TV shows, all the movies that come out that try to do that, there's complaints about, well, we spent too long in one era, so it threw me off transitioning to the other era. Coppola definitely finds a way to swing between both and tell, make a commentary about America and commentary on this idea of, oh, we should vilify mafia leaders. But if you're a politician, it's uh, not as bad because you buy into the veneer and the facade that a politician is somehow above being a mafia, Don, when in fact, both of them are committing terrible crimes that affect people for their own personal gains. So this idea of breaking the wall down of these long-held beliefs of who's right, and who's wrong, who's evil, who's not evil, who's bad, who's not bad, all of that is destroyed here in such fantastic ways in the writing. Oh, and by the way, it matches the family epic that's being told here, leading to the death of Fredo on the boat, one of the greatest heartbreaking moments in cinema, showing you how far cinema can go in these more popular films or in these films that are considered the great films to show the scope to which a person is willing to go to achieve and retain power and respect. Uh, And it was just uh, one of those ones that got, when it puts the hook in you, it puts the hook in you so well, bringing to life Cuba, bringing to life old New York, bringing to life current New York, bringing to life Reno, Nevada, bringing to life all this kind of stuff, seeing it all go back and forth and just, just, I don't know, just kind of mind-blowing in the scope of it and uh, its commentary on on our history in America.
1: So, you know how I said I had a real rough time with the certain films and whether or not I was going to include them or not include them? Not only did I keep switching things in or out up until about five <laughs> minutes before we started recording, <laughs> but I've been switching something in and out this whole time you've been talking. Oh. And, and because had you said Godfather One, I would have said Punt. Yeah. And, but then as you were talking, I went, you know what? I prefer Godfather to Godfather 2. It's okay. the movie I like. I would rather watch Godfather than watch Fair Godfather 2. As you were talking, I went, if we're really talking about a movie you have to see as a cinephile, you're right. It should be Godfather 2. Mm. So I'm giving the same answer here uh, okay. that, that, because godfather is an easier movie i don't just yes. mean that it's easier on the viewer which of course it is easier it on the viewer yeah but it's a it's, it's the 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 degree of difficulty of pulling off godfather 2 is many many times harder yeah. than what happens in godfather 1 as you talked about just the intercutting back and forth between these two different stories that are connected but don't connect i right. mean that's th- that's never been seen on film in that particular way yeah. the Unlikability of your main character and the difficulty of hanging out with him in Godfather 2 is much much higher. Yeah. And the and the scope and the distance that we're going to travel and to still have all of that feel like a whole movie. And in particular, the ending, which literally, when the ending happens, which I won't describe what it is because maybe there are people who haven't seen it, but at the final moment, I am always surprised at where the movie goes mm-hmm. at the very, very end of it. And it is such a bizarre choice and it is so powerful yeah. what happens in the end of that film that yes that is the more cinephile movie so i'm switching that to my number four film godfather too. oh
0: there you go and of course shout out to gordon willis's uh cinematography oh yeah you know they those are things we have to kind of factor in the cinematography that he does in this film is incredible and if you're looking to get into the world of cinematography this is one of those films that you have to absolutely put in your list of films to watch uh, in my opinion. So that's your, f- so then, then Godfather part two is your four is what you're saying. Yes, it is. Okay. So then my number four is the searchers. Okay. So yeah, it's, which is a pun from earlier. I mean, what can you say about this? Film? Look, people forget the, the Western genre ruled, ruled the film world for decades And people went back and did film. If you go back and look at the history of film, those, what, two or three decades where Westerns were king. And even now we're seeing with Yellowstone, we're seeing with 1883, 19, the whole Tyler Sheridan universe, even shades of Tulsa King that uh, Stallone is in has some Western vibes and feels to it. So the Western genre itself is coming back as something to re-explore and re-examine yet again, because it's also been a great commentary on America and where America is at and the, the Aspirations of America. The Searchers is, once again, one of these films that explores, and this is, this is I think, why it's an important film. You have an, a, a protagonist that is not easy to like. He is racist. He is rough. He's, at times, sexist. Yet he has a code, a morals, an ethics that he follows, that he lives by. He is courteous, uh, for the most part, to the women in his life. But then he's more than willing to net, let, let Natalie Wood or kill Natalie Wood at the end of the movie because of what happens with her and her going off with the native americans under her own not uh, not in, uh, not of her own free will initially but then being essentially uh, indoctrinated into being part of that situation so seeing all of that but then the journey they go on the cinematography here as well is incredible the vibrancy of this movie the um uncomfortable exchanges that we're seeing uh with uh, john wayne and other actors in the film and what they have to confront and what it forces you to take a look at because in essence he is america so by the end of the movie you have to ask yourself where you stand with him and i love that the film begins with the door opening out to the West and it ends with a door closing closing on John Wayne as if we're closing the door on the old West, closing the door on that old way of thinking, that old way of this country existing for a newer country, a more calmer country, a less violent country, a more accepting country. And I think there's something that, I think there's something in that film that really works and can affect you when you watch it. If you're going to see one Western and never see another Western, The Searchers, I think, is the one that you need to watch.
1: I couldn't agree more. And I think one of the mo- amazing things is that structurally you go like, oh, this is a basic adventure story. We've mm-hmm. got this person was kidnapped, and we're going to go find her and, and save her. That, yeah. It's real simple. And you and you sign on thinking like, oh, we're with the good guys going off on this adventure. And then John Wayne is such an uncomfortable character, you know, and, so, and yet so competent. I mean, yeah. the, he has so many of the skills of being a hero, but you feel very stressed about well what is it that he's yeah. gonna do and, and and you also understand some of his anger and where it comes from from right. some really difficult scenes that you go through in the movie yes and, and and the other thing about it is uh there's a story where you know back in the old studio days when john ford would go out and direct a movie back then Directors didn't supervise the editing because it was like a factory and they were off directing the next movie. And John Ford in his earlier films would see how his film got edited and he would be really, really mad because they didn't do it right. And so what he learned (laughs) how to do was to edit in the camera, essentially, which is that he only shot the shot that he wanted you to use. And he has this ability to put the camera in exactly the right place so that everything you need to see is in that frame you don't need to cut this yeah. is a skill that i definitely do not have as a director <laughs> i think so much more like an editor and so like as a cinephile every single shot you should be looking at like how did he put why did he put the camera right there yeah how did he frame this and and the and the ones that you mentioned which of course some of the most beautiful is the beginning and ending of the film yeah the shot tells you everything you need to know about what's happening in that story just from where he put that camera.
0: Yeah. John Ford, just a wonderful director and what he was able to bring out of John Wayne to create those. And whatever you feel about John Wayne is, you know, as you're feeling about John Wayne, but what he was able to do with John Wayne in creating, in essence, a blueprint of the um, the journey of America through his films, I think is just fantastic to watch. It's an American Genre, And I think if you're going to be a cinephile, appreciating the American, one of the rare American genres, uh, I think is is super important uh, in your education. Um, All right. What's your number three, Steve? My number three. So
1: I didn't plan it this way. But, you know, we've gone through through silent films. We've looked at these different genres. We've looked at the craftsmanship of filmmaking, particularly with films like Double Indemnity, films like um, The Searchers, films Mm -hmm. like 39 Steps. And then we also have the, the French New Wave, which challenged all those things. Yeah. Yeah. My next <clears throat> my next film is from a filmmaker who loved all of those things, who was a real student, both of the classic Hollywood directors and completely inspired by the French New Wave. And in this film, you can see all of those influence. And that is the last picture show by Peter Bogdanovich.
0: Oh, great choice, man. Yeah, we just did that on the <clears throat> same file. So please go ahead.
1: Um, It's it's a story. It's so funny because it's this sort of director is this sort of New York intellectual Jewish guy who comes to West Texas and makes this completely grounded film. And you can see the John Fordness of it in the way that it's shot. And you can see the 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 use of a John Ford actor whose name just went out of my head, um, uh, who plays uh, Sam the Lion. Um, who won the oscar
0: yeah uh, uh, oh yeah i, I can't remember right now it doesn't as well but go ahead anyway, i look it up go ahead i'll look it up he,
1: yeah. he he's a he gives this fantastic performance but then you also see this raw humanness in cloris leachman's performance which is yeah. just shocking and stunning and you have uh, a view of sexuality which you would have never seen in those classic american films but are things that come out of the french new wave mm-hmm. and it feels so real and so grounded and so human and it is definitely, you know, we've said this many times, but if you want to talk about a movie, you could see it different times in your life yeah. and experience it in very different ways. Well, that is The Last Picture Show.
0: Yeah, Ben Johnson is who we were thinking about. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I'm telling you, I had not seen it until we watched it for, where I watched it for our episode. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had resisted it because I was like, oh, it can't be as good as people are saying, you know, blah, blah, blah. And you watch, and you're like, wow, like this is a film. From the dialogue to the performances. I mean, that scene where Ben Johnson is delivering that monologue about oh my God. when he was younger and uh going off with um uh who was it that the who was the other woman it's, that he's
1: uh with Ellen Burston's character with
0: Ellen Burston, right? Going yeah. off with Ellen Burston when they were young and the horses and all of that. That's just like insane to uh listen to as a monologue. And that influence, I think that influences other monologues that come afterwards in cinema as well. Those, I mean, I would think of the, um, how can I say this? The, 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 the Anthony Hopkins monologue in Amistad. I think of all these monologues right. where you get to kind of stand and speak about a feeling or speak about a memory in a way that's really fantastic and powerful and takes you in viscerally into that story that you're living it as he's telling you the tale. It's so well done. But you're right. I mean, just the idea of the transitioning of America, the transitioning of generations the transitioning uh of people there into a different way of life into a different mentality but also the simplicity of the film once again with breathless the same thing the simplicity of the film that you can, in your mind, think, oh, he just put the camera there. But it actually speaks volumes about the intelligence of the director of why they shoot the film in a certain way to give you certain feelings, to give you certain um, emotions about what's going on with these characters and what's going on in this film. So, yeah, 100 percent agree with you. bro. And plus, in 1972, why are you doing a black and white film? You know, yep. but you're doing it to kind of convey and uh, convey the feeling of what's going on in, the, in an old c- city at a time in the past and i think that just works so well within that movie um all right so then my number three i know you're probably gonna hate me for this but my number three is diehard it, it went on and off my list multiple <laughs> times i mean i had to put it on my list look here's the deal And i'll tell you honest this is it was between seven samurai and diehard these were the two that were battling for my number three for action but in the end, because I already took because of the scope of The Godfather Part Two, I felt like I've tackled that with that film. So I had to put Seven Samurai away, even though if I did top 10 films ever made, Samurai's in my top five. But I had to go when it comes to action with Die Hard. There's something about Die Hard that still stands the test of time all these years later. So much so that they want to do a TV show of the prequel of Die Hard with John McClane, which is insane to me. But this is the film for the modern cinephile. If you're a modern cinephile, turning to this film is so important in your education. Don't blow this film off. It is not Van Damme or Seagal or any of these other films. It is absolutely an incredibly well-written film, a well-directed film by John McTiernan. Structurally, it works from top to bottom. The progression of things are not rushed. They're paced perfectly. You understand what is happening with Bruce Willis's character. You understand what it introduces one of the greatest villains ever in Hans Gruber and shows you as a cinephile how important it is to have a great villain to balance a great hero. You have to have that. And, and pro wrestling will tell you that. Sports will tell you that. You must have the great foil in order to appreciate the great hero. It must exist. There is no Ali without Frazier. It just doesn't work. You have to have the thing that tests you. And to me, Gruber comes in as the more experienced person initially. And then as the film goes along, you understand that there's a natural ability for John McClane to counter all of Gruber's instincts throughout the movie. And the pacing of it all works so well. And the emotional beats. It's not just an action film. There's genuine emotion happening between him, between Bruce Willis and Reginald VelJohnson. Johnson. Him, when he's doing the monologue, talking about his wife, Reginald Johnson, when he's talking about shooting a kid, all of that is there within them. And even within the villains, as things progress, as Hans gets more and more frustrated, what you start to see in him, Alexander Gudinoff, what you start to see in him. And then, of course, there's comedy throughout this thing to keep the balance. So if you're a writer... You're understanding where to put the comedy to ease the tension so the audience doesn't get too over the top. They stay with you and enjoying the ride, but also uh, enjoying the um, emotions of the near escapes and the massive explosions and that incredible finale in slow motion at the end.
1: Listen. You're never going to get me to say anything negative about Die Hard. <laughs> Die Hard is one of my all-time favorite movies. It's one of my Desert Island movies. It might very well be a perfect film. Yeah. I absolutely love it. It's one of the movies, one of the things that happened on the Cinephiles, by the way, is because when we started out, we just did like an hour review right. of our movies. And then they expanded is what we decided in the last few years is every year we redo one yeah. of the older films. And so Die Hard we did in the early days of the Cinephiles. And then yeah. a year or so ago, we did three episodes, probably talked six hours yeah. about die hard that is how much i love that movie it's funny if i hadn't put jaws on my list i would have put die hard on
0: my totally, list. totally. you know yeah uh, if i had die hard on my list i'd have put jaws yeah yeah
1: because yeah I, I agree with everything you said top to bottom this is a perfectly made film and definitely every time i revisit it i have that sort of is it really that good yeah. it's like <laughs> yeah it is really that good it is absolutely fantastic for all the ways you eloquently said yeah, no, 100% agree with you, man. All right, so what's your number two? Well, it's funny. There's a movie that you decided you weren't going to put on your list that is my number two, and that is The Seven Samurai.
0: <laughs> Great. I'm very happy it made one of our lists. So please, my friend, take it away. But again, now we get to, like, top
1: to bottom. You know, as I said when we, when we started, we were talking about Steven Spielberg that he might be the greatest filmmaker. Well, the other guy I would say up for that award yeah. is Akira Kurosawa. Yeah, Like. Agree. Uh, someone who worked, for, you know, made 40 movies over yeah. many, many decades, covering many, many genres. And, of course, people remember him for the Samurai epics like Seven Samurai, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But his, you know, more modern films like Ikiru, or, you know, those are really high, low. Low, high yeah. and low. Those are super, super powerful movies. And, man, Seven Samurai, it, again, it's one of those movies. It's a three-hour long movie. And every time I sit down, it's like, is this going to, you know, is this going to feel slow? Is this going to? No this movie top to bottom the way they establish each of those characters how you become close to them and come to love them even though they're they're not perfect that they're flawed that they're different and then as the adventure builds and it's so funny because i came to seven samurai from magnificent seven right so i had seen magnificent seven the western many many times before i saw seven samurai and it's like you take the same basic structure and then you fill out all the meat on the bones Yeah. so yeah. that it, you know, cause Magnificent seven, which I love is a great fun Western adventure. Yes. Seven samurai is also a great fun adventure, but it is deep. It gets yeah. into some depth and there are profound moments. And again, it's just the pure filmmaker. It's just yeah. like John Ford, every place he puts the camera is exactly where that camera has to be it is surprising performances from Toshirō mifune and um uh what's it, and uh takashi shimura like un- unbelievable performances one of my favorite swordsman heroes in the movie and then just the split between the samurai and the peasants and
0: how you feel about all their relationships what
1: an incredible film
0: Yeah, I think there's so much going on. You're 100% correct, Steve. It it broke my heart not to put it on my list, so I'm very glad it made your list. But absolutely, there's so much commentary about the haves and have-nots in this Mm -hmm. film. This idea of people who will fight for you from a noble place, you know, people who actually understand the difference between right or wrong skilled people who understand that it's a choice to be evil it's a choice to be mean it's a choice to abuse those below you it's a choice and so the commentary that's bubbling underneath the surface in that way is great to see in this film and the script i mean yes it's all japanese so you're you're watching the english subtitles for the most for most of us watching the english subtitles and stuff but all of that works in the different ways these characters... I think you hit a na- the nail on the head when you said the way each of these characters is introduced. I mean, how difficult is that? What was the biggest complaints people have about Eternals is they introduced too many characters, didn't give them a, enough time to live. But here we have a three-hour movie where you get enough time to savor all of these characters. Yes, the vi- you don't really spend a lot of time with the villains, but you're more, which is where Magnificent Seven I think, does a better job in terms of uh, having Eli Wallach really portray the villains. But here you have so much time with the seven samurai, so much time with the villagers, so much time understanding the dynamics. And I like the twists and turns that you have within the script, especially when they're hiding the women, especially when they're hiding uh, and then seeing con- being confronted about the fact that everyone's eating the food while these people suffer. And then the twist on Mafuni being a peasant who wanted to be the yeah. thing that, that abused him. All of that works so well as a commentary on our society. And, oh, it's one of the most incredibly well-directed films phenomenal cinematography phenomenal pacing the editing everything it leads to at the end of the emotional whip um wallop that you feel at the end of the movie when you're looking at all the flags that symbolize in essence headstones for the dead samurai and the three that are still alive uh, or yeah three that are still alive and the two that go like well we did it again we somehow we survived again this feeling of like um almost not um, joy, but relief more than anything else. And then a sadness to it all that we're going to probably have to do this again at some point down the road. And so all of that just kind of carries so much weight. So if you're a film student or a student or you want to be a cinephile, this is one of those ones you kind of have to watch and really sit back, savor, and enjoy. And I can't stress this enough. Another great criterion collection is the Samurai Seven Samurai oh, yeah. One. Watch it and enjoy all the background, uh, uh, special features about that film as well. It's one of those rare
1: movies where it can manage to be an incredible adventure that's thrilling yes, and an incredible drama that's deeply moving.
0: Like all great films, if you strip away the the analysis, the foundation of the film must work. If you strip away everything else, you can reduce it to its basic form. If you reduce a great film to its basic form and it still works... That's what makes it a great film. It doesn't have to have all this other analysis around it. That's so essential and important. Um, All right. So then, my number two uh, is my uh, Kubrick entry on the list: 2001: A Space Odyssey. I really, I mean, dude, I struggled so hard because I was like, do I put Doctor Strangelove on here? Because so many things are influenced from Doctor Strangelove. The political commentary, Veep. I mean, so many things are influenced by Strangelove, but. I had to put 2001 because I think sci-fi is a very important genre in the world of film. I think what, and of course in novels and all of that at first, but then in the world of film and how it can really affect people who watch film and take, and, and I think this film takes you on a journey. I actually watched the last hour, last week on TCM. I come back from a screening. I was still wired from the screening. Then they went to bed early. It was on TCM. And I watched the last hour. I'm like, this still puts the head trip hook inside my mind. And I'm still questioning what I watch at the end. I'm still questioning what it all means. I'm still questioning what Kubrick was trying to say. And that's Star Baby, right? So this is a film that covers from the beginning of man to the, the next step in advancement of man or the next iteration of man or a rebirth of man, which is so incredible. And along the way, It's telling this phenomenal story about power, about technology and the danger of technology. And the cinematography here is incredible. And it's timeless. This film could be released today and people would be crowing about the incredible special effects and the incredible look of the film and the pacing of the film and the cinematography and all of it and the commentary that it's making about how technology can rule us and control us and keep us in a box if we're not careful, whether literally or figuratively it can be done. So, so much about this film is a masterclass in filmmaking from one of the greatest ever do it in Stanley Kubrick. I
1: can't tell you how many times Strange Love in 2001 went on and off my list, (laughs) like over and over again. So it's a great choice. I kind of agree with you that 2001 is the better choice. And I could easily put it back on my list, but then I go, well, which one do I take off? And then I get very upset. Um, But here's the thing is that I think part of being a cinephile is that you are now looking at films, not just seeking pleasure right like yes you want to seek pleasure but like there are movies that are just thrilling and titillating and you could watch them all the time but when you say like no no i want to be a cinephile well then you want to challenge yourself a little bit and 2001 is challenging 2001 like if you just go like oh i hear this cool this cool sci-fi movie i love star wars and you know aliens and stuff like that i'll go watch 2001 well you are in for a rude awakening you know (laughs) because when you watch 2001 you have to like settle in and go okay you know the pace is going to be what the pace is it's not going to spoon feed me anything it's not going to have characters for the first hour that i can get really involved with yeah you know you'll see people there's going to be a bunch of stuff going on you don't understand it's and you're going to have to go i'm going to reckon with this and then i'm going to have to engage my mind and think about well what is this you know what is it that i'm seeing and man just and again like like you said on some of the other films you could watch it for the score you could watch it for the cinematography i think just watching it for the science you know just going oh, oh yeah. we're traveling through space how are we dealing with gravity how are we dealing with how does he do all this stuff it is so so compelling and when you get to the you know the Hal 9000 one of the scariest villains in film history
0: yeah you could argue that HAL 9000 influenced every single villain to come after her him uh because of the feeling of that it, it that it traps you and it, it controls you and um essentially locks you into a situation and you have to find your way to get out of it you have to outsmart this villain in some way in some form of fashion and by the way it's a computer so really one right. of the most difficult villains to outsmart if you're a man or well, a human. Qu- question yeah. for you
1: i know yeah. that one of your fears is the uh a- is a.i is how
0: the origin is he the first that created you know that what? fear i think i think and this is going to be weird i think hal and demon seed were the is that the d is that the one where um julie christie is locked
1: i've never the, seen demon seed i don't I yeah
0: don't know. I, I think it's demon seed i want to make sure so i'm gonna look at imdb real quick but i think that's the film And demon seed is um yeah julie christie and essentially this scientist Uh, creates a a organic supercomputer with artificial intelligence Mm. and it becomes obsessed with human beings and even there's a scene where it wants to have a baby so it essentially rapes julie christie in her own home Mm. so that works on a number of levels so and then she has the baby which is even more insane so the film itself and what it says about our enslavement to technology and the ability that if, if anything ever achieves AI, and I know a lot of nerds out there are going, eh, it'll never happen. It'll never happen. Bull shit. You have no idea. I don't care how much books you study. I don't care how much technology you study. You have no idea. The X factor is always a part of anything. And I think that is a possibility. I think Hal and Demon Seed, because very young when I watched both of them, I think they just absolutely put the hook in me of, Fearing of what the AI will do to us and can do to us for sure. So have we reached? Have we we reached number one? Is that where we we are? Our number ones. I wonder if we have the same one. We shall see, Sean. I certainly hope we have the same one. (laughs) Which, because if we don't, I would be.
1: It it would shake my world if we both didn't have a little movie called Citizen Kane as the number one cinephile film.
0: That's right. That's right. Citizen Kane. Please. Well,
1: you know, obviously we could spend a lot of time talking about Citizen Kane. Books <laughs> have been did. written. We did, I think, four hours on the Cinephiles. It was yep. our first two part episode. Um, I think, oh, uh, what to say? Here's the first thing I'll say. Yeah. There are a bunch of people out there who've heard Citizen Kane is really great, and the more they've heard it's great and that they should see it, the more they probably resisted seeing it. Yeah. Like yeah. you know to told
0: what to do. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And the thing is this is a great movie, not just like a great intellectual movie or not just a great, you know, movie uh, that where you could have a scholarship and examine details. No, no, this is a great movie. Yeah. And the performances are great. It is really fun in the beginning. Yeah. And then the way that you change the way you're seeing, seeing this character over time and the way the film is structured and the way it brings you different perspectives and the way he uses different, filmmaking techniques as the movie moves on again where he puts the camera the way the music is written and man every time i go back to charles foster kane i have different thoughts about who that guy is yeah
0: yeah you know it works on so many levels say you talk about the movement of the camera there's so much you can learn if you're a cameraman if you're a cinematographer of your director about the usage of camera where to put the camera i mean he carved out holes in the floor so greg tolan the cinematographer of him could put the film put the camera down there below the actor so he could shoot up especially during that campaign headquarters scene give you a weird feeling of them being somewhat giant or larger than life and then seeing them fall apart, even though they're giant and larger than life. So, so much of so much of that is interesting to explore. The darkness into the light—that how you can use the light to convey emotion before anyone even speaks a word or you see an action happen on the screen. How just the lighting of itself will immediately put you in a certain state of mind. Oh, and by the way, it's a commentary about a great man. You know, essentially uh, Charles Foster Kane sitting in for William Randolph Hearst and seeing what happens. To a great man, like what happens to a great country when it succumbs to its own vices, succumbs to its, it breaks its own rules, breaks its own ethics, breaks its own morality. All of that is a commentary. So, as a screenwriter, this is a this is a masterclass in understanding how to tell a story and scope and reflect it back to something that is topical, no matter when you're watching it. I mean, it works today. Well, look at Elon Musk and the madness he's pulling out. Look at the great, good, great, successful people in the world who become obsessed with their own success and what that does to them mentally and how the parameters of how to behave all of a sudden dissipate and disappear because no one is there to tell you no. And so you're seeing that with uh, uh, Citizen Kane and uh, that whole thing. And also the because he reflects America. When he is finishing the um, uh, the review that Lily was writing right. about Susan – that's america thinking it's better than or it's you know we'll do this for you but but then ends up firing him so this idea of perceiving they're doing good while also doing this other stuff in any country it isn't just america make that really clear any country in power will do this at certain times in their history so uh, a commentary on that as well but again the direction, the cinematography, the writing, the performances, the pacing of this all, and the way he is messing with your mind. I mean, that cockatoo out of nowhere, yeah. kind of shock you out, is fantastical in its own way that w- wouldn't normally belong in this self-important film. No, he has it's it's a fun film. It's an enjoyable film. The score itself is really good. And the scenes that you see with these characters, it it it, it um Uh, reinforces the tragedy of Charles Foster Kane and also the occasional commentaries on these scenes, these vibrant men become old and women become old Susan as well. And their comments on their lives and how it all turned out just all of it. But from top to bottom is phenomenal to watch. It's a technical masterpiece. It's a um, performance masterpiece, a writing masterpiece, cinematography masterpiece, all of it from top to bottom. And, and more than anything else though, I think you're right, Steve. It's a fun film. Don't get caught up in people thinking that it's boring or it's stayed or it's, you know, it's like, it's like a, you know, an old coffee table you've had around since your grandma was around. No, there's a lot of fun in this film and there's a joy and a vibrancy to this film that still persists today when you watch it you
1: know what i think maybe to define a cinephile movie yeah, is it's I mean, kind of what we've been talking about this whole time is that a cinephile movie is a movie first of all it's, it's got to be a great film you know if we're not <laughs> if it's not a great film then we're probably not going to be on the list but the the it's <laughs> yes, number but, one yes but but that you can watch it and enjoy it as a movie and then you can go through and watch it again for its details and watch it multiple times to get yeah. multiple things right you know so like you could go through and like Let's just watch that breakfast scene, the breakfast montage, over and over and over again, and look at all the things that are happening. We
0: do not have a Rocky montage without that montage. We don't. That's the thing. You can look at all all montages stem for what from what he was able to perfect in that breakfast montage in the movie. Yes, one hundred percent. Well, and then you can speculate
1: on the characters, and particularly the character of Charles Foster Kane, because he's yeah. so seductive at the beginning. You understand why he's so seductive. And then as he turns to being essentially almost a, a villain would be the wrong word, but 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 a really problematic person. Yeah. And then you could feel so bad for him. Mm. and 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 what's so sad is like, oh, you had all this power. You had all this charisma, all this intelligence, and you were seeking the wrong thing. Right. And that led you to these wrong places, you know, and and it can do all that. And just the ideas, as you think about some of the things Leland says or some of the Mm -hmm. things that Bernstein says, you know, that you go, oh, what are what what are our values supposed to be? You know, and then and then like you and what's interesting, too, with, again, a cinephile movie is you get to the end and then you go back to the beginning and you see the beginning differently because of where you it makes you question things you were seeing at the beginning of the movie yeah. and like one of the ones like i know we wrestled with and i probably would continue to wrestle with forever is like what was his relationship with mom yeah you know what right. is that do i feel good about his re- i know he's seeking it seeking love yeah. from his mom but what was going on and what was it like to go grow up in mr thatcher's house like you know yeah so there's a
0: lot in that movie well and, and because it symbolizes oh you know in the old days eventually essentially his mom is his how can I say this? His uh, glorified belief that it was better when he was right. with his mom. It's the nostalgia, sepia tone belief and the illusion that he was better when he was with his mom, because you have that scene when he's, you know, signing the selling stuff and right. they're all old. And he goes, don't you think you did a good job? Is uh, uh, yeah, it yeah, you know, I always choked on that silver spoon. And he said, I did, I did it all right for myself considering my circumstances so all of the hatred he has for the thing that he's become but there's no guarantee that him being back with his mom at 10 years old and them never becoming rich would have led him to a happier life anyway so i think there's so much of that how people speak nowadays about the old days and the truth is the old days as billy Joel once said weren't all that good so it's it's the truth of the matter here that's why this film is an american film it it absolutely is you know and i think it's fantastic in that way like steve said and i agree with the greatest film if you're gonna start the path of becoming a cinephile to start with is this yep. one so, uh, all right well steve uh, do you want to put him i feel like we shouldn't put this list together just let him stand alone or do you want to fight over a list and compiling I, I i don't i don't need to fight over anything
1: why would i i would not fight against 2001 or die hard i mean like that you know that would be a ridiculous statement i i, I do think uh let, let me ask you let me ask you this question sure if you were going to say, which one of these would you, would you say you need to hit first as a cinephile? Ooh, great question.
0: Like, do you start with Kane? I would start with Kane because I started with Kane. Um, yeah. Kane changed my life. So for me, I like fuck, man, I'm still talking about film in 2022. And I was a 16, 17-year-old kid home, sick from high school when I watched Citizen Kane. And everything changed for me from that moment forward. Like, everything like everything so if you're a burgeoning cinephile i would recommend you start with citizen Kane because that's my exploration but 2001 is not a place not a bad place to start either for so many reasons i i
1: definitely would not start at 2001 (laughs) (laughs) i would start i actually i mean you know me i'm i'm kind of chronological so i would maybe start with Caligari and Sunrise. Oh, interesting! You know, and so do a couple of silent films, and I would do, and I, I actually would put Citizen Kane in the middle. Mm. Is I would go do, you know, things like Thirty Nine Steps, Double Indemnity, and The Searchers, right? To sort of get your these are classic American films and understand them, yeah, and then do Citizen Kane and then move on to breathless and last picture show wow. you know jaws and die hard that's 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 probably what i would do and then when you're done when you've re- seen all of these films cuz i think all of our lists are well worth your time
0: yeah then
1: go back to citizen kane again
0: there <laughs> and 2001 there you go. and then 2001 you get- of course yeah, yes yeah. It's almost as if Steve teaches a course about things like this. So, <laughs> uh, all right, well, there you go. That's our separate top 10 lists of uh, the top 10 movies every cinephile should see. We hope you, we educated you a little bit or excited you a little bit about some of these films. Maybe some of these films you've resisted for a while. Maybe we put a little, a little bit of influence inside your mind to give it a chance. Uh, you know, Christmas comes up. Most people have some days off we are not working retail most of them have some days off maybe you'll enjoy some of these films on your days off and let us know what you thought about them as well we would appreciate it me and steve for sure and uh steve thanks for taking the time to be uh to sit in for matt man i appreciate it madly it's always great talking films with you my friend where can people find you and everything you got going on
1: well it's sr morris on twitter sr morris one on instagram not that i really do anything on instagram but i will yeah i froze up again didn't I? you
0: did go ahead I did. finish okay. that last part of it
1: uh uh sr morris one on instagram although i'm not there very much and of course cinephiles you know i think let's see we've got movies that we did on the cinephiles that we just talked about citizen kane seven samurai last picture so yeah. godfather breathless the searchers jaws die hard dark Knight, some like it hot godfather 2 2001 those are all and do the right thing those are all movies we did on the cinephiles so those you could definitely check out and if you're a star trek person it's enterprise incidents
0: there you go and that's for me you can follow me at the roca says on twitter instagram and tiktok the outlaw nation on twitch uh and uh, my youtube channel youtube.com slash the um uh, john roca says go there and see all the stuff we're about to cross twenty five thousand subscribers which is a big goal of mine this year so very happy to see that so come aboard and see all the stuff we're doing there on that uh, channel as well. And my other podcast, the cinephiles, which I do with Steve Morris, the geek buddies and the hot mic that are out there for you all to enjoy as well. All right. Uh, hope you send the best wishes to Matt Nose that he feels better. I and mean, He's back next week. we we keep the train going here on the top 10, but uh, big love to Steve for taking the time to hang out with us. Y'all take care of yourselves, Be well, and we'll talk to you next time with another brand new episode of the top 10 show. Peace. Ooh.